Hi, everyone. Welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rukraut. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And today we are going back to our normal format. We're talking about multiple films that have recently come out or will be out by the time this releases. Movies that are going to be somewhat centric in the awards conversation. And we will be doing a few of these throughout the season. So today we'll be talking about Priscilla, The Holdovers, The Killer, and Nyad. I think an eclectic group to start this off with. <laughs> I think it'll be a fun discussion, though. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of funny because we are going in order, I think, of the most serious film to the funniest film, which <laughs> might not be expected, you know, having the killer and then Nyad finishing things up. But yeah, I'm excited to dig into these. And these award season check-ins, I like when we start doing these because... We do spend some time, you know, talking about Oscar potential and everything like that, but it's also just a good opportunity for us to just take stock in the movies that we have this year, and I think it's it's been a really good movie year so far. I've been happy with a lot of the releases that I've seen, and I liked a number of the ones that we'll be talking about today, so... Let's get right into it with Priscilla. Description here. When teenage Priscilla Beaulieu meets Elvis Presley at a party, the man who is already a meteoric rock and roll superstar becomes someone entirely unexpected in private moments. A thrilling crush, an ally in loneliness, and a vulnerable best friend. That is, I would say, about 25% of it, but that's okay. This was directed by Sofia Coppola and stars Kaylee Spaney and Jacob Elordi. It's in theaters right now, released by A24. It premiered at the Venice Film Festival this year, where Kaylee Spaney won the Volpe Cup for Best Actress, well-deserved, and she's also nominated for a Gotham Award for Outstanding Lead Performance. I saw this at New York Film Festival, but we haven't really talked about Sofia Coppola at all, so I don't really know how you feel about her. But yeah, how do you feel about Sofia Coppola's body of work in general? Is she a director you like, don't like? I could honestly see it going either way. I think we've only briefly discussed her like in the context of the bling ring, which is so funny and crazy because I love the bling ring. I do need to do a rewatch, which is a completely different film than Priscilla is, but I haven't seen her entire filmography, but I do like generally what I've seen. And I think her aesthetic is the most prevalent component to her movies and here as well. I, you know, laugh at the beginning of the episode and it's kind of like the good, the bad and the ugly we have today. And kind of with this film, too, I have a few things to say. I wasn't super high on it, but the ugly here being the Elvis character, which is kind of a joke, too, because he's played by Jacob Elordi, who is very hot. And the moment <laughs> there's a moment when he like glides out of the pool and I think everyone's just like took a gasp in it's yeah I think that one of the things about the movie that can be difficult for some viewers but something that I really liked about it is that a lot of it is told like this kind of impressionistic memory so things are very short there's a lot of editing and they're quick flashes of moments for Priscilla and I needed that pool scene to be a little bit longer we could have watched him get in and out of the pool multiple times and I would have been very happy there's a very conflicting idea to Elvis because especially now you know last year we had Elvis by Baz Luhrmann and Austin Butler and it was this huge glorification of Elvis and his star power and celebrity 
And here we have a very different vision of him. And it's coming from the Priscilla perspective. That's why the movie is named after her. And you kind of get to see this different side to him with her in the forefront. And I think having a discussion about those two movies is really important and interesting. I also like was waiting whenever he was on the phone with the colonel for like a Tom Hanks jump scare to happen. <laughs> I know anytime the colonel's mentioned, I and it's very rarely, but I kept thinking of mm-hmm. Tom Hanks, especially in those scenes when she goes into the mail room or like the offices at Graceland and I kept thinking where is the colonel? He needs to be lurking around here somewhere or I guess he's just <laughs> off on the road with Elvis wreaking havoc. Which I guess that energy is matched by the father and a Mm -hmm. lot of the male characters in this movie. You know, her perspective here is very clear. And I like that we do get to see this side of Priscilla and what happened to her throughout the years in her relationship with Elvis. And I think by the end, you know, we see so much of this. And then only in the final five to ten minutes do we get this confident woman who leaves Graceland ready for a life of her own. And I think I wanted more of that. I feel like you could have seen that coming with, you know, Elvis being so hard hitting on her. I think that's what you were worried about with me and Killers. Yeah, because I know you have an issue with with movies about women in difficult relationships with men, specifically, especially if they're told in like a dreamy Not necessarily that. I think it was just very black and white. And I guess for Sofia Coppola to be directing this and it to be about Priscilla, I wanted more of that. Yay, power to her. Let's now get rid of Elvis and see what she's done. I think that's not really what happened, though. (laughs) So that's, it's just, it's not, that's not what's in the book. That's not how Priscilla feels about Elvis, which is one of the most interesting things about the memoir, is that she is very protective of him and her relationship with him and of their privacy. And the, the memoir itself doesn't, extend beyond the period that's captured in the film so as an adaptation you have to see I I don't think it's black and white at all I think it's like very very nuanced into how you can feel when you're really young and in love and also trapped in a relationship that is really bad for you I I feel like it's it's very very complex and how she handles it and I think that by the time you get to the end yeah I mean maybe they could have spent more time on that as opposed to those earlier moments but you have to in order for it to feel crushing I think you have to spend that time where she doesn't know yet I mean the huge thing about this and this was entirely ignored by the Baz Luhrmann film, which is its own thing altogether, but is that she's she's 14 years old and he's in his 20s. And I don't think it's just like Elvis is bad. I don't think it feels obvious in many ways because I think that because it's told through her perspective, you see these flashes of her realizing slowly that this is a problem for her. And she's too young to do that on her own and to figure that out because she's a baby mm-hmm. and she's in a different time. And I think that this movie, what's what I love about it is it has so much empathy for Priscilla not leaving him, for figuring everything out. And it has to spend that time with her because that's how much time she spent with him in these very formative years of her life from being 14 years old, waiting on him, <laughs> like she's in high school, to moving to Graceland when she's in high school to finish school and, you know, experiencing that life of being trapped in this gilded cage, which is something that 
Sofia Coppola does so well. But yeah, I think I think that the way that it explores like her relationship with him, her relationship with herself, what intimacy looks like for her is pretty revelatory for a film about young women. And it's much deeper than just a surface level. Elvis is bad. Priscilla needs to get away, which is why I was so invested in it and felt like very moved by it by the end. I think why it was black and white to me, we get some early examples in the film of him mistreating her. We see the pills early on, he gives her some form of Adderall, and that kind of cues this addiction that not only he has, but he kind of thrusts upon her. Mm -hmm. And in how she doesn't really want to pay attention in school because he is or has become her life. And him trapping her in Graceland, yes, that's definitely a part of it. And not being able to have friends, you know, the father warns her, like, you can't bring anybody over. The whole time, I mean, you are thinking about the age difference and how he's this veteran, you know, it starts off in Germany, and we get to see him in the armed forces and how he very honorably approaches her parents and in asking for their permission. And, you know, slowly she travels to Graceland and they spend more time together and then she ends up moving away from her parents that are still in Germany to live with him but he's gone he's on the road he's filming movies in Hollywood he's having the time of his life and also in the tabloid she's seeing all of these reports about him being with other women and that's another frustrating part to the story is at one point he goes like oh I need a woman who understands that this is what it is And maybe it's partly in looking back or, you know, seeing it from the other side, but it's like you just want to shake them and that this is crazy because she deserves better than this. And I think, I mean, part of this is me not knowing their history. I didn't know she left him. So there's a lot for me to understand and learn, but it is a very complex relationship that by the end, when you're hearing Dolly Parton singing, I will always love you, it does showcase that conflict that is still in her but still getting to see her leave is like therapeutic absolutely I mean I like I think I just think back to like if I were 14 years old let's use a person who's you know very active now if I were 14 years old and someone came up to me and said if I was doing my homework I was far away from home I didn't have any friends my parents just moved me to another country and they were like do you like Ryan Gosling movies Or do you like Bradley Cooper movies? And I was just like, yeah. And all of a sudden, this man who I was, who I thought I was in love with because I was a teenage baby and had watched their movies or, and those aren't even great examples because they're not as famous. They weren't as famous as Elvis was. I mean, he was ubiquitous, like the most famous person on the planet. I would have done anything, anything to be with him. I can't even imagine, you know, because you're, you're young and you just don't, you don't know any better. And it's, it's hard because if all of a sudden someone like that is giving you attention, is telling you like, you are the one that I'm choosing to pluck from obscurity to Mm -hmm. be my person, right? Like to be the one that I give attention to, to live here with me. That's so, so powerful and so scary in a way that that can happen because what it is is it is this dark turn on a fairy tale it's like a brother's grim fairy tale though it's not disney it's very dark in what it's saying and ultimately for her right he i don't know it's it's something where he exerts power and control over her 
so slowly and he sees her as someone who he can totally manipulate and mold into a person that's the version of a woman that he wants. And you can't really blame her for falling in love with him or for not leaving because that's the first time she's ever experienced something like this. And it's coming from a person who to the world is different than what she sees, right? And is also like, she's living the life that any girl would dream of. They just don't know what's actually going on. And she really has no power right away. Like her parents could have done something, sure. And that's also crazy. And that's in the book, right? That they let her her go. But the thing is, the thing about Elvis that's crazy and that I think Coppola explores and that Jacob Elordi does a great job of showing in the performance is that what he does to people is he manipulates people and uses his charm as a weapon to get what he wants. And he masks all of his more insidious traits under this guise of chivalry or this like Southern gentleman like thing. And that's how a lot of men operated at the time. So I can't fault her for taking a long time to get out of that because that's what happens in these sorts of abusive relationships. I think you can love someone and be afraid of them at the same time. That's like a very, very complex thing that is hard to show in a film. And I think she does it very beautifully. It's, it's just a very melancholy, sad version of the fairy tale that just shows that the things that you can dream of are not, you know, not what you imagine. And that type of life is actually really boring and can be really terrible. So it's a lot to a lot to describe because I feel I felt very moved by it, but I found it to be incredibly beautiful and a fantastic adaptation of her memoir, which is a really tricky, tricky text. The tone of it, like I described in an early episode, is quite bizarre. Priscilla will be describing what happened to her with Elvis, but it's clear that she still has love for him. So it's it's someone who is freed from that, but also who clearly still had love for the man when she wrote the book and still does and the movie doesn't judge her for that what i loved about the movie was definitely her vision and in the framing the colors the production design i think she is a master of creating these painting like frames there's a scene where they take polaroids together in their room but i feel like even greater than that is sofia coppola's ability to make every shot beautiful in its own right. You know, we have that opening sequence where she's getting ready and we have the shots of, you know, her painting her nails on the on that carpet and putting the eyelashes on, putting that eye makeup on. But whether it's Priscilla alone, whether it's them together, it is very, very beautiful to watch. Yeah, it's so funny because she definitely has a very clear aesthetic and I love that. That's what makes an auteur an auteur. You can look at her films and think, oh yes, this is a Sofia Coppola film. Not only in terms of theme, right? Teenage girl loneliness, the zap of a first love, all of that. But it's the look of it, the ways that the bedrooms or the living rooms or these spaces are are the safe havens or the spaces for creativity of her heroines. 
even in something like On the Rocks, which is considered lesser Coppola by many, the detail of the apartment is just incredible. Like the fact that they have a Bernie Sanders sticker. All of these little things are so right in her movies. They're so carefully curated. And for a film about someone like Priscilla Presley, who is known for a particular look, and Graceland, which is very well known, I think, right? She uses those pre-existing notions that we have to create something that's very beautiful aesthetically, but also to show something darker and really sad again and more sinister underneath it, which I really love. So yeah, the cinematography, the production design from Tamara Deverell, who we talked to when she did Nightmare Mm -hmm. Alley, I think is just great. She wanted to make Graceland look like a wedding cake, which is, I just love that. That she did that. But yeah, I think visually it's really beautiful. I also want to mention that Sofia Coppola was denied the rights to use the music from the Presley mm-hmm. estate. But I actually think that benefits the film ultimately because it denies Elvis of his power. We see the Elvis that Priscilla knew. So we're not seeing this charismatic, charming man on stage singing his greatest hits or anything like that. Instead, it really, I think, exposes him and allows her to step out from behind his shadow for the first time, really. So yeah, I love the I love the aesthetics and the look of the film and the performances. I think that Kaylee Spaney gives one of the best performances of the year in a very, you know, crowded, I would say, actress space this year, but I'm very happy that she won at Venice. I think it's a tremendous performance. Yes, when I saw Tamara's name flash before the screen I Mm -hmm. almost started clapping for her (laughs) but I would also love to shout out Stacey Batat who was the costume designer I think that is another flawless element of this movie as much that this movie is Coppola's aesthetic it is also so much of a 60s 70s throwback and everything from the cars that everyone is driving to the costumes and The hairstyles, I mean, there's a whole moment about her getting her hair, whatever, permed or, you know, blown up like that beehive. Yeah, it's crazy. Yes. Mm -hmm. So all of that, I think, is picture perfect and really makes this movie what it is. And I think a big part of that is just setting the scene and taking you back to, you know, a time when you're talking about these relationships were conflicted and this is how men were it. It very much is a different time and immediately with, you know, whether we're inside or outside of Graceland and Germany, wherever we are, that is very much apparent. Yeah, I love the montage with the costumes, too, and when she's getting her hair done. And you realize that these things that are so part of Priscilla's life that you, you know, associate with her identity, the beehive, the winged eyeliner. Those were decisions made by Elvis. That's not necessarily what she wanted. And that, again, playing with that type of scene that we see in a lot of romantic comedies, a woman gets a makeover or something like that. There's usually a fun, lighthearted element to it. And here it's just, oh, he's making her into the woman that he wants. And it's pretty gross. She likes a particular dress and he hates prints. He hates denim. So it's a big deal that she's wearing jeans at the end. And I I love those little details and how the costume design and the makeup really bring the character to life and show the darkness thematically in the film as well. 
how do you feel this is going to do either at the Oscars or just in the award season in general? I'm not really sure because her films haven't really done well at the Oscars. She hasn't been nominated since Lost in Translation when she won the screenplay Oscar. I I can't see it getting anything big in terms of nominations like picture, director. I absolutely think it should be considered for adapted screenplay, but that category is... I don't even know where to begin because we have... Oppenheimer, Poor Things, Killers of the Flower Moon, American Fiction. I mean, it's just, it's crazy crowded. And I don't think they're going to give this the attention it deserves. But I think it's possible for it to show up in technical categories, especially costume design, production design. I would love cinematography to be considered too. But I think in terms of guilds, it should definitely appear there. I'm not sure so much with Oscars. I think the big thing that I want to watch for is Kaylee Spaney winning... The Volpe Cup is a huge deal because recently the winners of the Volpe Cup, they get in. Olivia Coleman won, Vanessa Kirby, Penelope Cruz for Parallel Mothers, Kate Blanchett for Tar. A lot of my favorite female performances of the year win the Volpe Cup. So if she were to win something like a Gotham Award or if she were recognized by critics, I think that could push her over the line and I would be incredibly happy. I think it's really incredible what she's able to do just with a look. This film does not have a lot of dialogue in it and I think she gives one of the best performances of the year. I'm rooting for her to make it in. Sofia Coppola movies don't usually get in with technicals. That's my only other worry too. But I do agree with like at the Costume Guild, that should definitely be nominated I think with production design too, there should be some potential. Another problem I see is that with A24, you know, they have a lot of other movies this year, which I kind of want to see how Netflix handles as well. We'll get to them later. But, you know, they have Past Lives, The Zone of Interest. They still have The Iron Claw coming out. There's so many other movies and, you know, they did write by Michelle Yeoh last year. But I'm curious if that affects how they push Priscilla because it's a smaller movie in a way than some of their other movies with their slate. But I think being nominated at the Gothams, this is definitely a movie that could perform well there or like at the Spirit Awards if it were at any ceremony. So I think look to those and maybe not the Oscars. And that also, like you said, fits into how they treat Sofia Coppola films in general. Because I will say, we talked about On the Rocks a few years ago, and I like that movie, but it did nothing at the Oscars. We can't expect them to make good decisions all the time. But if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I am going with Production Design by Tamara Deverell. I love what she does here, and in the mood that she casts over this film. Obviously, that's a joint effect between cinematography and direction, but I loved seeing those old 60s cars and just everything from little props to even just navigating the spaces at Graceland or in Vegas in the hotel. There are definitely some great set pieces that we have in this movie. Which Oscar would you give it? Well, I really want those magazines with Jacob Elordi as Elvis on them. But I would give my Oscar to Kaylee Spaney for Best Actress. She would be in my personal five for the year. I feel like the performance on the surface is rather understated, but it's pretty brilliant when you really think about it. They had 30 days to shoot this movie. They did not shoot it 
sequentially. So she had to basically go from being a 14-year-old girl to being, what, 26 sometimes on the same day, which is crazy to think about because she's so good, I think, at capturing those dreamy looks of when you're in school and you can't focus because you're just thinking about this guy or, you know, the moments where she has more of a steely resolve up against him. And she's figuring all of that out. It's really remarkable that she was able to accomplish that. And she's so young, too. This is her first big lead role in a film. And I feel like it's just a knockout. So I would give her my Best Actress Oscar. That is a perfect segue into another new actor we have in The Holdovers. So first, the description. A curmudgeonly instructor at a New England prep school remains on campus during Christmas break to babysit a handful of students with nowhere to go. He soon forms an unlikely bond with a brainy but damaged troublemaker and with the school's head cook, a woman who just lost a son in the Vietnam War. This was directed by Alexander Payne. It stars Paul Giamatti, Divine Joy Randolph, and newcomer Dominic Sessa. This is now in theaters, and this is being distributed by Focus Features. Awards so far, this was runner-up for the TIFF People's Choice Award, and Divine Joy Randolph is nominated for a Gotham for Outstanding Supporting Performance. So how do you stand on The Holdovers? I love The Holdovers. So I saw this back at Telluride. And I really loved it, but I, I think worried that it was just the festival environment that made me really like it. And I knew I needed to see it again to make sure I was being, I mean, there's no way to be objective on art. It's all subjective. It's all our own opinions and what we bring to it. But I really wanted to watch it again. And the second viewing really confirmed for me that it's one of my favorite movies of the year. I love that it feels like a film from the 70s. Like it has this kind of Ashby Altman-esque quality to it for me but it also is just such a great story and has these characters that just feel like they're cared for deeply by the screenwriter here David Hemmingson. It's just a full meal of a movie. We don't really get movies like this anymore. We say that at least with one every year. Like, oh, we don't, they don't make them like they used to. But this is, I think, a really clear example of a film like that that just feels like it's made for adults. It doesn't sugarcoat anything, but it also doesn't use the issues that the characters have as a crutch throughout the film. And they don't go into territory where I think a lot of filmmakers today would. So we can get into some more of those things like the mental health that's discussed or alcoholism or, you know, unfairness in terms of, you know, who gets access to this prep school environment. The ways that they handle those things in the movie are entirely unexpected. I think especially in 2023, there were many times where I feared the film would go in a particular direction and it just never did. So I think this is a film that you should take your family to go see. It's a great film to watch over Thanksgiving or Christmas. And yeah, I just, I loved it. I know you loved it too. So what did you love about The Holdovers? Yeah, it's hard to say what I love because I could be here forever just listing everything from the movie. I think how it immediately starts. I mean, you get that very old MPAA card. You have the old Focus Features graphic. And you hear these boys in this choir singing, Oh, Little Town of Bethlehem. And then it cuts to this montage of the city where they live. And there is immediately this 
cozy yet sad melancholic aspect to it and i love that in an indiewire article they talked to alexander payne and he was very confused why people are calling this movie cozy and he talked about how a very large percentage of suicides happen between christmas and new years and that isn't a warning that doesn't happen in this movie but i think that is what i like about the movie is that it's not this cheery christmas tale it's about real people experiencing some form of depression and mourning and the fact that these three people, this unlikely trio, are stuck together. And in these moments where they're secluded at the school, they start to find similarities. And I think that's the joy and the comfort in, you know, during a time where you're supposed to be with friends and family, cuddled around a fire, talking about old stories and having this nostalgia. They don't. You know, Mary lost her son in the past year, only a year or so after he graduated from that school. And she's scared to leave. You know, it's heartbreaking to see her in moments because I love what Divine Joy does with this character and in how calm she is. But you can also see the pain and the thought behind all of her actions. Mm-hmm. I love her nomination at the Gothams, but... It's really everybody, you know, from Paul Giamatti's dry as hell humor that just (laughs) makes me laugh nonstop. I mean, this to me is the funniest movie of the year. And it's because I didn't expect that in a million years from a movie that is portraying the 70s in this new way. Because it's also this drama and I expected something really serious. But it is so playful in how it kind of enraptures you and takes you in and makes you feel for this professor, this curmudgeonly professor very much so, who basically becomes a stand-in father for Angus, this student, this troublemaker student. So yeah, I think it gets the people right, the relationships, and also this is another like great 70s period piece. And in all of the costumes, you know, we have those long plaid skirts and all of the corduroy, I which I love. The corduroy, <laughs> yeah. One of when I was watching, I thought to myself during it, "Oh my god, I have that suit, <laughs> the one that yeah, I thought of Paul you. wears. Yeah, I have that brown corduroy suit that I got <laughs> that the vintage one. Yeah, no, the clothing is." immaculate i'm so happy that you loved a film set in the 70s like you do not know how that how happy that makes me feel um welcome to my time period but i think that one of the things that i do love was what you were talking about about how like holiday movies i think when we think about oh a movie set at christmas or thanksgiving new year's any of these times it has this sugary sweet warmth to it there is a lot of fun and lightheartedness to it and there is a lot of comedy and there's certainly warmth but it I think looks at this time in a much more realistic way and it has that thing that I love that Paul Thomas Anderson does in his movies and that Hal Ashby does in his movies of this blend of light and dark like happiness and sadness that sour and sweet combination And Mm -hmm. that's what I really love about the movie, because that is how you feel at this time. Like, you can feel really lonely. And I like how the three characters at the center of the film feel connected to the place. So they all have very specific relationships to Barton Academy, 
like you were referencing, like how Mary feels like she can't leave because it's the last place where she spent time with her son. And she feels like spending the holidays with her family would be betraying him in a way. Like that alone is enough for an entire movie. And the fact that they are able to give her as a character the time and the space that she needs while also doing that for two other characters is pretty remarkable. And you have Angus, right, who wants to be anywhere but Barton Academy, but also you start to learn here and there that he's been, like, kicked out of different schools and he, this is kind of the last place he can go before his parents ship him off to military school. And just the idea, too, that he has a family, but they don't really want to spend time with him. Mm-hmm. We don't know the details at first about the relationship with his his father. We just know that his mom has remarried and would rather spend Christmas with her new husband than with her son. And this is how a lot, having worked in private schools before, this is unfortunately how a lot of these parents are with their kids. It's unfortunate. It's a lot. That could be a conversation for another time. But so he doesn't want to be there. Obviously, he wants to be out on one of these vacations where all of his classmates are. Paul is so connected to Barton too. And what I love about him as a character is that he's this teacher who clearly cares a lot about the school, cares a lot about his field, about ancient civilizations. Like you said, he's a curmudgeon and he doesn't want to let any of these boys off the hook. I love there's a line when (laughs) I think Mary says it, it's when Mary and Paul are talking and they mention the, the combination of rich and dumb being mm-hmm. very popular at the school. Like these boys that are just really wealthy, they get whatever they want, but they're also not that bright and don't work that hard. And they expect things to be given to them. And I think the idea that that's really hard for Paul and for Mary to come to terms with and really, you know, they don't they don't want to accept that because of their past and their situations, I think is is really smart. And it's something that I think is kind of the, the engine that keeps the film going. Because with all of these characters, it's the bottom line is there's more than meets the eye. There are surprises around every corner in the film. And I just love that. There's a quote early on in also why Paul is here stuck for winter break And it's from the other teacher who is supposed to have this position. And, you know, he lies and says his mother has lupus. And he's talking to another teacher. And he asks him, like, oh, does she actually have lupus? And he's like, lupus? I don't know. Maybe. We don't really talk about those things. And this repressive quality is kind of what pain veers away from in this movie, even though this is very normal for the time period. And that's also something I really like is how these characters who can be stubborn and walled off slowly open up to each other and kind of throw away this repression that is so prevalent in families and in society. And, you know, this kind of bleeds into this being set during the Vietnam War in 1970 and the implications of that, part of that being you know, this is where Curtis Lamb died and he went to fight so that he could go on a GI Bill to go to college and the guilt that Mary feels because she couldn't send him right off to college and in why she feels stuck to Barton in this place as well. But I think it gives this 
almost ladybird quality to the movie, which is something I like really connect with this like backseated politics idea and in what that did to the time, like in how the Iraq mm-hmm. war did for Lady Bird and how Greta used that to frame the movie and that family. So there are all these little elements that are also layers to the film that you unearth as the movie goes on. And something I also really love, this movie is like two hours and 10 minutes and Mm -hmm. it lingers at moments. And I really love that because you get to feel these underlying emotions that the characters are showing you, but it doesn't feel slow. Nothing is slow about it. There's a steady pace to the movie, but I think it mirrors the tone really, really well in what pain is doing. Yeah, the way that the film plays with time is interesting because you do have to feel stuck there, right? Like you have to kind of understand how Angus feels and how these characters feel over the holidays. There has to be that indication of the passage of time and that taking time. And I love that the how the film moves because also because how it starts, right? Angus isn't the only boy who is there for the holidays. We have a number of boys who are there and there it's sort of a funny, funny cast of characters. We have two younger boys, one whose parents are Mormon missionaries and the other whose parents are in Korea and who like don't want him to make the trip home by himself. Then we have this very wealthy student athlete who doesn't want to cut his hair. And that's the reason why he's there because his parents told him he needed to cut his hair to come home and he didn't. (laughs) And then we also have this boy, um, Koontz, that's his last name. And he's just the worst, just such a pain to deal with and sort of Mm -hmm. the thorn in Angus's side. But this section of the movie, you know, when they're all together before they all leave and get to go home for Christmas. And then Angus just ends up being stuck there with Mary and with Paul. It makes the film feel very literary. I know I've mentioned that before, but it reminded me of a book that I would have read maybe in high school or in college of this particular setting around the holidays taking place in New England. The level of detail that's there for each character is something that we just don't really see in movies anymore. Like, there's so many good little scenes where Payne will just let the camera linger that just make you think a little bit longer about whatever you just saw. And the way that the film moves sequentially throughout the holidays and throughout their time there, it's really, really beautiful. Yeah, even though we have all of these boys, there's a reason that they're there. Mm -hmm. And that even though they only have a few scenes, they each stand out. And, you know, I love with the Korean boy when he's crying in his bed and Angus is there. He kind of consoles him, but also in the next line says, find a dry spot in the bed, which just made me die laughing. But they're there to comfort each other, mostly. I mean, the, yeah, the idiot athletes are not. But, I mean, even with them, you kind of understand with Kuntz, that there's some trouble back home and that's probably why he's rebellious. And then with Mm -hmm. the other guy with the long hair, you know, he quotes civil disobedience and this is his one way to reject his parents and Mm -hmm. the adult way. And that comes back in the end in a very quiet way. You know, they show it, but they don't explain it. And I love that 
so much. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's just everything in this movie. There are so many good quotes. I think the writing is fantastic by Hemmingson. This is his first feature film. He's only worked in TV. And I'm like, what? You wrote that? <laughs> because it is so good and sharp and gets everything right. I, I cannot fault this movie in any way. <laughs> and as much as Payne hates to hear this, I will be watching it every year around the holidays. There's comedy in the placement of all of the carols. You know, when Deck the Halls plays, we're running around campus with Angus, mm-hmm. enjoying shots of campus and a little town of Bethlehem, like I talked about in the beginning, or Away in a Manger when we see the snow globe with Santa standing over the baby Jesus. I love Mary. Mary's name is Mary Lamb, which evokes this Catholic image, especially around the holidays and Christmas. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot that the next few times I see this, I will pick up on more things. I can't wait. Exactly. No, I'm I'm really excited to see it again. This film is also so New England in terms of that tone you were talking about earlier and how the humor of it and how the characters treat each other. Hemmingson and Payne understand that New England prep school environment so, so well. And I agree with you. This is going to be a future like holiday classic for me too that I'll watch every year. And I'm excited to take my family to see it this year. How do you feel about its Oscar potential? I think it has great Oscar potential. I think especially in the bigger categories, for sure, picture, screenplay, I think in original screenplay, this could, it is a very strong contender. It depends, Mm -hmm. I think, if Barbie, Barbie right now is slated to run an original, but if, you know, the Academy rejects that idea and finds it to be adapted, I think that the holdovers could definitely win the original screenplay category. I think in terms of performances, too. That's where I think this movie really shines. And I think and hope that all three actors will get nominated. I think Divine Joy Randolph has a really strong case to win in supporting actress. And I love the the warmth and the humor in her performance. But also, again, that sadness and guilt like you talked about underneath is is really strong. And I know actors crowded and so is supporting actor. But if they really love this movie, I don't see how they do not nominate Paul Giamatti in lead. And I feel like this is such a good performance from him. It's so funny at times, like you mentioned with that dry humor. But those scenes later on in the movie when he's talking about his past at Harvard and why he's still at Barton and he's connecting with Angus a bit more. I love those scenes with him. And we also need to talk about Dominic Sessa. Because I think this could be one of our surprises Oscar nomination morning. God, I would love that. Oh, my God. (laughs) I really think so. I think, like, a Manchester by the Sea thing could happen here. And we could see him in. And Paul Giamatti, his history with the Academy is spotty. He only has one nomination for Best Supporting Actor for Cinderella Man. He was famously snubbed for Sideways. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I hope that this can be a makeup nomination for that and that we can see him get his first best actor nomination for The Holdovers. First, yeah, I always think Paul Giamatti, one, how is he not one? But two, how is his nomination not for Sideways? Yeah, Big Fat Liar. Oh, (laughs) jeez. 
I mean, this is only the second time they've worked together, which is also surprising, but Mm -hmm. I am very much for this nomination. Divine Joe Randolph, I agree with all the other nominations you've said. I would love to see her battle it out in the end. I really do think she'll be nominated. This is an Oscar-heavy movie, but it's not a Beatty movie. And then with Dominic Sessa, there's a scene where he's in the hospital sitting with Paul, and he's red-eyed, almost ready to cry and he's saying like I don't get to spend time with my father and you really get to feel this pain inside of him because he mentions his father over and over throughout this movie and eventually we find out what has happened to him but I think this is a really touching scene between these two actors that they just get perfectly right and capture the sensitivity behind them despite what we said earlier about men in the 70s so i'm all for those i would love screenplay as well i think a picture nomination is likely we could also see paint up for director i think he's uh-huh. probably in one of those fifth or sixth spots depending on who is pushed this year i mean this will be focus's big movie which i'm excited for there could be some technicals like production design or costumes again. Mm -hmm. But I think those come secondary to those big categories, those central themes and and performances that we get. I also wonder if this is also one of those cases where we see an editing nomination. If the movie is, you know, really strong, if they really love it, Kevin Tent could be nominated. He was nominated previously for The Descendants, So we could see, I think, that come through if the movie is really, really strong. On Dominic Sessa for a second, one of the reasons why I'm also rooting for Dominic Sessa is because, like you said, these these little moments with the character, for a first-time film actor, they're pretty exciting to see. I think of the scene when, a scene later in the film that I won't spoil, that features some very, like, subtle moments with him, just broke my heart as he's talking to another character. And I think he gets the comedic moments right, too. But I love that he was just discovered at Deerfield Academy, where I've previously been. (laughs) So I was excited to see that. But casting agencies reached out to Deerfield. His acting teacher gave them some potential candidates. He auditioned and took some Zoom meetings with Paul Giamatti and got the part, which is so crazy. That they just Mm -hmm. found this high school theater student and he did that great of a job. It's really cool. Yeah, I totally agree. So if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I really love this movie, so it's hard to pick just one thing. But I think I have to go with the screenplay. The screenplay is just so smart. And like I mentioned earlier, it never gets into territory that I feared it would get into. We never have this big conversation about Paul's drinking or we never have this sit down between Paul and Angus that's like you're a great student why don't you apply yourself it doesn't go into any of those cliches and that is I think the smartest thing about the movie and why I really love it so much it's so unexpected and thoughtful and really cares for every single character on screen no matter how minor their role is what about you I am also giving it to screenplay. I think it's what made me fall into it so easily and sustained my smile throughout watching the Mm -hmm. entire movie. I was just shocked at 
how much I was loving it constantly. And, you know, you have little character traits like Paul Hunnam calling the students reprobates, troglodytes, and all of that gives this a Dead Poet Society, the paper chase kind of vibe, but it's not haughty. You know, it's not unreachable. So I think that humor brings us into it and towing the line between that and drama and sadness is just done really, really well. So it's safe to say we highly recommend The Holdovers. Go see this over the holidays and let us know what you think. Next, we have David Fincher's new film, The Killer. Description here, solitary, cold, methodical, and unencumbered by scruples or regrets. A killer waits in the shadows, watching for his next target. Yet the longer he waits, the more he thinks he's losing his mind, if not his cool. This is out in theaters right now, limited, but it's being distributed by and released on Netflix on November 10th. This was directed by David Fincher and stars Michael Fassbender, Tilda Swinton, Arliss Howard, and more. The only awards this film has gotten so far, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross won the Premio Soundtrack Stars Award special mention at the Venice Film Festival. We saw The Killer together. How do you think this film fits into the rest of Fincher's filmography? We both love David Fincher. We've talked about him previously on our Mank episode, and we did a full retrospective on all of his films. So... What do you think about it in comparison to those? It kind of took me a minute to get into it. I was like, wait, David Fincher did this? But as the movie's elements, I think, continue and repeat, you start to understand Fincher's cadence more and why he made the movie in this way. And then it starts to feel more like a movie by him. So I think it took me a little bit by surprise at first. I mean, I really love the title sequence that just kind of like hits you across the face with Mm -hmm. a bucket of ice water. It's so quick. (laughs) Yeah. I I love the editing. I I love that intro sequence. Mm -hmm. And then you get into a mostly mute Fassbender, which again, like that took me by surprise. And it's, I mean, he, he barely speaks in the movie, but you get this voiceover from him. So it's just a different way of filmmaking that I don't think I've seen in a while. And especially by someone as big as Fincher. So I think in terms of his filmography, this is somewhere in the middle for me. He now has 12 films, and there are so many that are just downright classics. But I think this movie is rewatchable. I think there's a lot to gain from it and grab from it. But I think it sits in the middle. I still, I really enjoy this movie, and I think his filmography is really strong. So I don't mean that to sound down on it, really. Where does it sit for you? I think I'm in the same boat. It's right in the middle. I don't think it's Zodiac level for me, but I still really loved it and had a lot of fun with it. I think it's so funny. The humor of this movie is very much my speed. It is bone dry. Like it is, it's just (laughs) so, so good. And the references that are used are impeccable. The way that Fassbender plays with the voiceover is so good because he's just so cold. His voice has no emotion to it. He's repeating a lot of the same lines over and over again, but his sense of humor is just perfection to me, really, because 
there are just so many great lines that he says. There's a moment when he says, WWJWBD, what would John Wilkes Booth do? There's also <laughs> when he's when he goes to Florida. So as the film progresses and he, you know, messes up his first hit and then is on this winding road across the world, going to different locations to carry out his own personal mission, I will say. He winds up in Florida. And his commentary about Florida in particular is so, so good. He says, where else would you find this many like-minded people outside of a penitentiary? Just Mm -hmm. so funny. And the fact that the film opens with him trying to carry out his hit from within the walls of an abandoned WeWork. Again, just Fincher's (laughs) commentary on capitalism and on brands is so good. Mm -hmm. He goes to McDonald's. He... Places a very scary order from Amazon that's <laughs> delivered painfully quickly. He goes to Equinox. There's so many funny things about brands and about different, you know, 21st century businesses that are really just, again, hilarious. And I cannot stress what this soundtrack meant to me as someone who grew up listening to the Smiths. The fact that he kills people to the Smiths, I just... It took me out. I was laughing so hard, as you know, during this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's another line. He says, who needs a Trojan horse when you have Postmates? Which is just <laughs> so, is so hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I thought this movie was going to be something completely different. You know, talking about killing to the Smiths. But it's a really introspective look at his character as a killer who makes a mistake, you know, what the implications of that means and Mm -hmm. how he continues on and how that kind of veers his life in a different direction. Mm -hmm. So, you know, revisiting moments from his past and I think using that as this new revenge flick is really smart. This movie almost borders on feeling European. Like, yes, Mm -hmm. part of it takes place there, but I think in its portrayal of these characters and the action... But then later on, we get some of those very typical Fincher elements. We have this action scene I mentioned previously that blew me away. I was gobsmacked by what I was watching. And it's just perfect editing, perfect sound work, like we know from his previous movies. And Mm -hmm. the whole time I was like, is he gay? I was like, what is is Fincher doing with the camera at times? And it just kind of makes you think about this killer assassin in ways that I have never thought about one before, besides Mm. being just, you know, they kill people. That's what they do. They're evil. Fassbender adds other qualities to him that I've never confronted before. Yeah. And there are a ton of, in terms of Fincher too, he is collaborating with a lot of his key collaborators from his career. Right. We have Kirk Baxter editing. Eric Messerschmidt is our DP here. So it really has that Fincher look and feel. But it is the comedy really is cranked up. The fact that like all of his aliases are characters from 70s and 80s sitcoms. Oh, my God. And again, it's like if you don't know those references, it's not going to land. But when you do there, it's just that much funnier. To hear him being called Sam Malone when he has a Massachusetts driver's license or um, Archibald Bunker. I mean, hysterical. Again, Mm -hmm. I just, I feel like 
in a way, it's Fincher commenting on his reputation and the idea that people have of him as, you know, being this perfectionist, being someone who, you know, everything is so exacting. And if you change one thing, he's going to notice right away and everything like that. Like even the tagline of the film, execution is everything. That feels like Fincher sort of making fun of himself and in how people perceive him. So I love that he's having fun with that. And I think the one thing I'll say about this movie, I wanted more Tilda Swinton. I think that Tilda could have been in the Fassbender part. She could have been the killer and that would have been Mm -hmm. absolutely amazing. But the scene that we do get with her is top notch and one of the best scenes of the year. Describing her or making her look like a Q-tip is just (laughs) downright funny. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Very silly of him, but... How do you feel about Oscar potential here? Uh, it's hard because this is, again, action thriller, like you mentioned. I mean, the, the fight scene is so violent. I can imagine Academy members turning this off. But I want to mention, though, the, <laughs> the moment when he picks up the cheese grater, looks at it, and then tosses it aside is so funny. So, again, it's like there's just this, it's like violent comedy in a way. Mm-hmm. And that's not what this branch tends to go for. When they like Fincher, it's usually the Manx or the Benjamin Buttons, those kind of prestige drama pictures. And this is very much not that. But I think it's a welcome return for Fincher. But awards, I could see guilds going for it in score and sound. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, again, key collaborators of Fincher. They were nominated at the HMMAs recently. And the sound deserves to be recognized everywhere it can. Yeah, Fincher's having fun. Let him have fun, even if this doesn't get a nomination. But with those elements, I would love to see something. The sound, the editing, just is what makes Fincher notable. Yeah. I also have to mention that I love Michael Fassbender's outfits in the same way that I love Lydia Tarr's. The muted athleisure is so good. (laughs) that what he wants to look like a german tourist Mm -hmm. so no one will bother him perfect and if you could give this movie one oscar what would it be i am giving my oscar to kirk baxter for editing the pacing of the movie is very much due to him whereas in the beginning we're getting to know the character and things are really slow he's waiting for this person to come for days on end and things are happening very slowly and then once we learn about what the movie is going to be things pick up so quickly and we get a lot of cuts and unlike the character who cannot kill when his heart rate is above 60 beats per minute you are the opposite of that as the audience you know things pick up and you are along for the ride for the rest of the movie and I think the way he navigates meeting these people like Tilda Swinton's character and how things change there and kind of slow back down is perfect. So yeah, I give him my Oscar. What about you? I would give my Oscar to the sound team in a similar way to editing. Like Sound and editing are often connected. I feel like the way that Fincher plays with sound here is so smart. And I love one little detail of the sound that I really loved is how we hear the music of the Smiths. So when Michael Fassbender's character puts on his playlist and we're listening to How Soon Is Now, we don't hear that song like we typically would in a movie. 
depending on where the camera is, we hear it either from his perspective where it's really loud, you're hearing all of it. And at other times we hear it and it's a bit more muffled and muted because we're not hearing it in the same way that he is. We're almost hearing it like we're outside of the scene. So it's a bit quieter. And I felt like that was just such a smart detail in how to use the music that the character is listening to. Yeah, I like that too. Okay, on to our final film. We will be talking about Nyad. The description here, 64-year-old marathon swimmer Diana Nyad attempts to become the first person ever to swim from Cuba to Florida. This is now playing on Netflix. This was directed by Jimmy Chin and Elizabeth Chai Vassarelli, and it stars Annette Bening, Jodie Foster, and more. They too, as Diana Nyad and Bonnie, are definitely the stars of the movie, but I do love the team that accompanies them along the way and the meaning of that in the very end by her speech. But so far for awards for this movie, Julia Cox won the Variety Screenwriters to Watch Award at the Mill Valley Film Festival. You saw this at Telluride, right? Mm -hmm. What did you think of Nyad? Nyad is the comedy of the year. (laughs) It is not trying to be, but there are moments, and I use this term sparingly, because I think it's overused for sure, but this is a campy film. The dialogue in the movie is just so funny, and the film takes itself very seriously, but it is so funny. The screenplay, it's pretty clunky and chunky, and the direction, I think, unfortunately, shies away from really getting into the meat of who Diana Nyad is as a character, She's a very controversial person, not just in terms of her commentary that exists today, but in the world of the film, in the time frame of the film, she is regarded as a person in the swimming world who might be lying about her accomplishments. That is a part of who Diana Nyad is. What? And the film, yeah, and the film just does not address that at all, <laughs> <laughs> which that's their prerogative. Oh Diana God. Nyad is attached to the film in many ways but yeah she's an incredibly controversial figure and that just isn't really touched upon here and I think it would have been a much stronger film if they actually got into who Diana Nyad actually is as a person instead they just kind of make her this vaguely prickly hard person to deal with which because of Benning's performance is kind of funny to watch, I have to say. We'll see if you agree. But for me, though, I think, like, the film is... It's easy enough to settle into. I can imagine audiences finding this on Netflix and thinking that it's just a totally easy, harmless watch, a sports movie that has an uplifting ending and some good performances at the center, too. My standout here is Jodie Foster, who plays... Diana's friend Bonnie, who sort of turns into her like coach um, and major supporter of her her swim. But yeah, I think this this film is it's something all right. I will say that. <laughs> what about you? You know, during award season, we can't always have these heavy hitting, super serious movies. And I think Nyad is the perfect relief from all of that. You know, you can put it on. It's enjoyable, you laugh in a different way than the holdovers, but 
I think ultimately it works. It works as a sports movie, as one showcasing these performances and showing us at least a version, I guess, of who these mm-hmm. people were. And in the end, we get this montage of them together swimming, making public appearances. And I think how they captured them kind of worked. It's It was pretty spot on. And using the movie, again, it's a very non-serious movie. It's fun to be a part of, but it's ultimately the story of friendship and determination. And that is just so inspirational. I think the emotions are overwhelming at times and you can't help but shed a tear for what she accomplished. There's a moment when there's another athlete who tries to do the same thing. And I don't know the the real story, what is fiction and nonfiction apart from the CGI and, you know, what she sees underwater and hallucinates, which apparently is a thing when you've been swimming for 48 plus hours at a time, I can imagine. That surely was a sight to see. You know, I would love to see the Taj Mahal underwater. You know, we might maybe in the future (laughs) in reality, but... (laughs) The Taj Mahal CGI is so... (laughs) I'm so happy that... (laughs) <laughs> More people get to witness this now because it really is a moment to behold. And, you know, Jimmy Chin and Elizabeth Chai Vassarelli, this is their first narrative feature. But still, the subject, I think, is is fitting for them here because in their movies, I always ask myself, why on earth is this person doing this? And I think they do get at the determination and the understanding of the character in a better way with Alex Honnold in Free Solo. I prefer that film, definitely. But I feel like this this subject matter, they definitely are really well suited to tackle here. But these bits, like the CGI, are just insane. I can't even properly prepare people for that. And I, you know, growing up, I was a swimmer. I swam for a very long time. Never anything like this. My God, like the furthest distance I ever swam competitively was the mile. But to think that you could hallucinate the Taj Mahal. Oh my God, I never want to be in the water that long. (laughs) But I did like how they incorporated the music into the movie because that is something you do when you're swimming distance. You have a playlist that you work through in your head to Mm -hmm. establish your pace and to also help the time pass when you're swimming. So... I did like that. I think that that kind of showed an understanding of the sport and how athletes train. But yeah, it's ultimately just a very funny, silly exercise and an easy watch. From the beginning when Bonnie goes, oh, I forgot the poop bags and they're coming home from Petco to watching Nyad swim with that camo mask on that looks like it's from Spring Breakers. Oh my God. Yeah, it does look like (laughs) Spring Breakers. It's funny how Benning is really committed. She's good. And so is Jodie Foster. But it's to a point that is almost laughable. Yeah. And just how crazy, I don't know, her commitment is or her being in the water and how she goes in between singing and counting in Spanish and saying, see, I just don't go in for poetry. Why don't they just say what they mean? There's so many menopause (laughs) jokes, too. Like, it is just... (laughs) When she's like talking about sponsorships, like a tampon commercial, she's like, thank God we don't need those anymore, right? (laughs) Oh my God. It's also this strange like Cuba propaganda movie. They always have these Cuba shirts on. Cuba's everything, like she says in the movie. 
And I think her dreams, you know, in showing why this is a thing and how her dad inspired her, how it mm-hmm. deals with flashback, I think, is so messy. The way they just either slowly but all at once reveal that her coach raped her. And I was like, whoa, hold on a second. Because they do this so nonchalantly, but it inherently drives her to become the person she is today. And this persistence that she has in wanting to reach this goal and and everybody saying she can't do it. It just felt a bit uneven in how it Mm -hmm. shows these different moments in her life. It's a bit confusing in how how it comes about, too, because of where it's placed in the film too and again like the the nature of the screenplay you start to think oh so is this the reason she got back in the pool is this the reason that she stayed out of the pool for so long it's sort of unclear and visually it reminded me a lot of like a reenactment from a documentary or what like a lifetime movie it felt very i don't know it didn't have the sophistication that is present in the rest of the film and that made it i think a bit distracting Mm -hmm. But how do you feel about Oscar potential for Nyad? In a way that Oscar winners, especially in acting, win for a performance that they shouldn't win for, I still don't think this is Annette Benning's time. It could feel like it. I guess if we're looking kind of at Brendan Fraser from The Whale last year, they're actually really similar. (laughs) (laughs) I do prefer Nyad to The Whale. (laughs) Yes. Honestly, I'm like, kind of in on Nyad I would watch it again it's just <laughs> silly and fun I love this for you and I love and I love <laughs> those inspirational sports movies mm-hmm. they really work on me but I think actress is just really crowded and I don't think she really has a chance you know maybe Jodie Foster does I do think she's good but her performance is pretty subtle and there isn't necessarily one scene or certain moments that make her really stick out but she is a big character an important role in Nyad's win and life and in this movie so I like how they showcase her and use Jodie Foster I think that's really where the acting potential ends I think they're just overpowered by either newer actors that have come to the screen that we've talked about today or just a more diverse collection of roles versus this somewhat standard biopic that is a bit more baity I think in its other elements, I mean, visual effects isn't going to show up. Can you imagine? We need. I, <laughs> the stars I really and... <laughs> want to talk about the stars in the Taj Mahal during our Contender series. <laughs> hey, never say never. Yeah, I just, I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. I think this is one that maybe Netflix will push under the rug once they realize that it doesn't have that strength that maybe they initially hoped it had. So. I still have Annette Benning in my Actress 5 <laughs> oh because we have to think like the Academy here. Mm-hmm. And I think we can live in a world where we have all of these, you know, exciting performances from critically acclaimed films there. But at the end of the day, this branch operates in a very particular way mm-hmm. where they, you know, they love Brendan Fraser in The Whale, Jessica Chastain in the eyes of Tammy Faye. They nominated Javier Bardem for being the Ricardos. Like, being in a good movie is just not a prerequisite for a nomination. And I don't think they're going to go entirely young here. I think that would be kind of rare for them. I think we need a veteran around. And this performance, there is a story there. Annette Bening's really respected in the industry. 
she's been nominated many times before and hasn't won. I don't think she's going to win for this by any means, but I don't want to count her out of the race of mm-hmm. the nominations because this is something I think that the industry can respond to in a way that, you know, she's not going to get a critic's win. We kind of know that to be true, but I do think it's possible for her to appear because it is, you know, this transformational arc. She trained heavily for the role. And I think when the strike ends, she will be out on the campaign trail for it. Diana Nyad being out on the campaign trail for it with her might add some complications to it. She might tell her to stay at home, but um, we will see what happens there. I also think that makeup is a really strong possibility for a nomination because of what they do to her face throughout the film. From the effects of the salt water and just being out in the ocean for that long. And for roles like this, we tend to see, you know, a nomination in makeup and a nomination in acting kind of going together. So I think that's definitely a possibility. But I think Jodie Foster can definitely get in because supporting actress is very thin at the moment. It's very in flux. The color purple just being a big question mark. I don't really know what can happen here. I mean, the only two that I feel like we just feel like we know are going to get in or could get in are Divine Joy Randolph and Emily Blunt. So that leaves a lot of room. And Jodie Foster is really well respected in the industry. And I think she steals the movie out from under Benning. But other than those three, I don't think it's it's getting anything else. And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I know Annette Benning trained like crazy for this, but I'm giving Best Supporting Actress to Jodie Foster as Bonnie. I feel like she's the heart of the movie. And I know I just, I, I do love Jodie Foster and in pretty much everything that she's in but here's a case where we just see her like her natural abilities as an actress to shine through I do think she has a a few key scenes in the movie where we start to understand I think despite maybe some of the weaknesses in the script we start to understand why she feels the way that she does about Diana and her friendship and why she's kind of put her life on hold to help her train for this great accomplishment so Yeah, I I would go with Jodie Foster here. What about you? I'm going to go rogue and give my Oscar to screenplay. Oh my god, I was hoping you would do visual effects. (laughs) No. (laughs) One, this is an adapted screenplay based on a book by Diane and Iad. And then, like we mentioned earlier, the script was written by Julia Cox. I think just the comedy of it, I mean, maybe it was deliberate, maybe not. But there are just so many funny moments that I think the emotions build off of so like I talked about how it maneuvers those moments I think it does it well enough it's just you know Nyad screaming at the tv where's a box jellyfish when you need one is just (laughs) made me howl (laughs) when they celebrate that she can't finish her swim because of the jellyfish (laughs) oh that's so good and we have Bonnie's multiple diet cokes across the coffee table Mm -hmm. (laughs) oh I do love the Diet Coke. It's how I need to watch this movie if I watch it again. But I think in how it tells the story, I didn't know she had four failed attempts at this race. So I think going through and definitely seeing that relationship between Bonnie and Nyad and the strength with them and in doing this together, you know, whether, you know, she comes back and says, like, even if you die during this race, I want to be the last person that you see, which kind of just is a gut punch of a line. So 
yeah, I think Julia Cox did a good job and hopefully see more from her in the future. And our final plea, if only we could go back in time and see the version of this film starring Faye Dunaway as Diana Nyad. (laughs) I mean, we know she's a swimmer from Mommy Dearest. Yeah, it's true. (laughs) I'll always beat you. (laughs) She would definitely have drowned that other swimmer if they had met in person. (laughs) Oh my God. Can you imagine? (laughs) Well, that was our first award season check-in talking about Priscilla, the holdovers, the killer, and Nyad. Go watch these films. Let us know what you think. Next time on Oscar Wilde, we will have our second award season check-in where we will be talking about Rustin, Saltburn, and May, December. Another eclectic mix of 2023 releases. Yes, I hope you all enjoyed our conversation today, and I'm excited for next week's. If you like our show, feel free to rate, review, and follow. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Oscar Wilde Pod. And bonus content at patreon.com slash Oscar Wilde. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.